Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking his kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. If you haven't been with us this fall, we're walking through the Gospel of John, and we're seeing Jesus meet all kinds of people, each of whom has a different story, a different struggle, a different need. And Jesus is showing himself to be good news, really, really tangibly good news to all of these people in their stories and in their struggles and in their needs. And so, so here's, here's where we are today. If you and or if a friend, family member, neighbor is trapped by some shame, some brokenness, and if you're willing to consider the concept of sin, then John 7, John 8 shows us Jesus is really good news for you and really good news for your family member, neighbor, or friend, because he, he offers a way to pull you out of that sin and shame. Cool? So before we dive in, um, if you've been following the guide that we're given to, to DNAs th- this fall, um, you know that while every Sunday is kind of zoomed in on some specific verses, the guide has you reading a couple chapters. Um, why is that? It's because context matters. Context matters a lot. And so if you read John seven and eight coming in, this is a risk, so now I'm going to find out if you did or not. Um, if you read John seven and eight coming into this, was there anything that you noticed? Was there anything around Jesus's encounter with this adulterous woman? Did anything stick out to you from these chapters that you read? Anyone? Anything? Okay. Um, I'll give you a couple things that stood out to me as I read the context around this. Um, we're far enough into Jesus's ministry that there's this debate and confusion over who Jesus is. Here's Part of John 7, uh, as, as the gospel writer captures this, there was much muttering. I love the term muttering. We don't use it enough today. There was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man, and others said, no, he's leading the people away. A few verses later, some of the people in Jerusalem said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And, and here he is speaking publicly, and they say nothing of him. Those who are trying to kill him say nothing. Could it be the authorities really know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And, and so there's these, these mutterings, there's these conspiracy theories even kind of surrounding Jesus. And, and Jesus continues throughout his life to consistently call God's people and the leaders of God's people back to God. I'm not sure why this isn't progressing, but it's not progressing. Got a few issues. There we go. All right. Can this really be the Christ? That's where we're at. Um, So Jesus continues to call people back to God. And then Jesus continues to provoke, and there's a positive and negative sense of the term provoke, but in the positive sense, he's trying to provoke and explain how different God's heart is from what is often seen and heard and taught in religious circles. And you know what the key to God's heart is as Jesus is consistently calling people back? The key to God's heart is grace. The key to God's heart is, is love. That's one thing that's happening in this, is he's consistently calling people back to God, but it seems so counterintuitive to the non-gracious, non-loving world that there's this debate around Jesus. Here's another thing that happens in John 7 and John 8. Jesus is predicting his own death. Many times in these chapters, and we'll see this going forward in the Gospel of John, Jesus is claiming to be God He's claiming to be sent from God the Father. Many times Jesus starts to reference his own coming death, but he always ties his death to Old Testament prophecy. He always talks about his death as good news for God's people. He talks about his death as 
the seal of God's truth, the pinnacle of God's grace and love. What we see in Jesus's death is the ultimate show of God's heart. And that's the other part of this context. In John chapter 7, verse 2, John tells us that all of this is happening during the Jews' Feast of Booths. Anyone know what the Feast of Booths was? It's an annual feast. Go for it. What is it? That's awesome. Give her a hand. That's more than I had written down about the Feast of Booths. <laughs> Yeah, and, and one, one just piece to, to bring out of what Ashley just said, it was, it was a remembrance of God delivering his people from Egypt back in the day and, and his care for them as they wandered through the wilderness. Again, his grace and his love as they wandered and after he had set them free. There's one other aspect of that, though. Of all the pilgrimages to Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths had the most sacrifices offered of any of Israel's feasts. And so blood would flow and, and, and the, it was remembering the blood of the lamb that covered the doorposts that God used to protect Israel, again, showing his grace and love, and to free them from Egypt. That's important. The, fe the Feast of Booths, Festival of Booths, celebrated God's deliverance and his provision. It's foreshadowing something, which you know what it is. Um, that's why context matters. Like, it's in the middle of this feast. It's in the middle, hear me, it's in the middle of God delivering his people, celebrating God's deliverance of his people out of his grace and love, that then his people are acting directly opposite toward this adulterous woman and not showing grace and love. So here's what happens, as Nicole already read. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple and the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them and the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, teacher, good teacher, it's a literal translation. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now we don't know anything about this woman. We don't know if she had a partner. We don't know if she was single. She's married. We don't meet the person that, you know, takes two. So we don't meet the other person. But the situation's not the point. The point is that she claims to be one of God's people. She's Jewish. And Jewish law, this is what they're saying, Jewish law says the fair punishment for adultery is death. So they ask, good teacher, you claim to be from God. You're a good teacher. What do we do? But this is not an earnest question. It's a trap, and John calls it out clearly. They said this to test him so they might have some charge to bring against him. All of Jesus's life, all of his ministry life at least, the religious leaders of the day are trying to trap Jesus. And all of Jesus's ministry life, Jesus always seems to find a way out. And yet they keep trying. And it's, it's almost fun. Like if it wasn't so tragic, it'd be funny. It's like the, like all the elementary kids are out of here. So I can reference this and some of you might get it. Like it's almost like the I'll get you next time gadget kind of thing where at the end of every episode of Inspector Gadget, like he wins. And then the guy's like, I'll get you next time. But he never does. And that seems to be all throughout Jesus's life in ministry until they finally do. And with the adulterous woman, Here's the trap. If Jesus says, let her go, then they would accuse him of blaspheming God. And, and Jesus throughout his ministry walks this fine line. He, he even says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so if you ignore the law, if he ignores the law, he'll be labeled a heretic. He'll be labeled anti-God. But on the other, other side of the trick is if he says, 
you should stone her at this time and at this place in history. He's not blaspheming God. He'd be blaspheming Rome. Because only Romans at this time had the right to inflict capital punishment. That's why Pilate had to sentence Jesus to death later. Jewish leaders couldn't do it. It had to be Rome. And so he'd be going against the government. It would not fare well for Jesus. And so what does he do with this adulterous woman? And to zoom out, what does he do throughout his life with thieves and gossips and drunks and oppressed and others who are being oppressed or are being rightly punished if you're following the letter of the Old Testament law? What's he going to do? He's not going to contradict either the Old Testament or Rome. Instead, he's going to offer this alternate third way that is called grace and love. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And man, there's been a lot of ink spilled over what Jesus wrote. Um, a lot of people have a lot of theories. There's a thing going around right now that shows him drawing a heart and says that's what he wrote, like with authority. That's what he wrote. It wasn't. Like a, like the heart shape is more Valentine's, more of a like Western American creation. Um, that was very not going on when Jesus uh, was, was riding on the ground. And also like the seat of the human emotions in Jesus's time was not the heart. It was actually the bowels. I don't think he was drawing those either. So he was not drawing a heart. Nobody knows what he was drawing, but a lot of people really want to know and think they know. So wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now hear me, according to God's law, these folks had a legal right to stone this adulterous woman. But grace and love is not concerned with legal rights. That is true then, that is true today. Grace and love is less concerned, is not concerned with what is legally right. Grace and love absorbs punishment. Grace and love lays down our rights for others' good, even or especially if we don't think they deserve it. That, church, is good news. And look at how Jesus introduces this concept, this grace and love. They're yelling and condemning and picking up stones and ready to kill this adulterous woman for her action. And Jesus instead says, what about your heart? He gently invites them to see this, this could be you. In some ways, this is you. This could be anyone. In some ways, this is everyone. Whether hidden or open, secret or overt, every single human sins. Every single human feels shame. Whether you use that term or not, it's universally true. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, a good question for all of us is where is our sin? Where do we feel brokenness? What is it that leads us to feel shame? And, and if, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if, as we talk about as a church a lot, we want to be with Jesus and become like him and do what he did, whose sin are you willing to stone while you also ignore your own sin? Because that's the opposite of what Jesus says is at the heart of God. Here's, here's Jesus' point. By God's one perfect standard of perfection, no one is without sin. 
Everyone is condemned. Everyone is guilty. Everyone needs God's grace. Everyone needs God's love, even if the law says there's a legal right to punish you. Is that fair? And when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I think there's something telling in that. Those who had more things to look back on have a little bit more wisdom than the young bucks. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, and he stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, that's the heart of God. How do we know? Again, broader context helps here. Throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8, Jesus says many times that his own acts are God's acts. Jesus' own words are God's words. And here's some of the things he says. If you, know, if you knew me, you, you would know what my father does. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but of him who sent me. Why is this important? There's a, a great book we're referencing a lot to, to shape this fall. A guy named Jerome Bars. Uh, in, in the book, which is called Learning Evangelism from Jesus, Dr. Barr says that in every encounter Jesus had, he did exactly what God the Father wanted him to do. His actions, his attitude of his heart, his words, and his manner in which he expressed them are always precisely what God the Father desires. But then Dr. Barr continues and says, how different are we? Often in our encounters with people, we're reluctant to put ourselves out there. We're self-centered. We're judgmental. Our attitude of our heart and our actions don't always show love. Our words are inadequate and confusing and too many or too few. This is a problem. And, and so there's this, this one side of the coin for today. Again, Salt and Light is asking this fall, how can we talk about Jesus to each other, to our non-believing family members, neighbors, and friends in a way that he actually sounds like good news. And if our actions and words, church, or even, I love that he says, the posture in which he expressed them. If, if something about people's experience with us communicates, clean yourself up before you're welcome here. We miss the heart of God. Like, what's today's version of the adulterous woman? Who are we quick to jump on and condemn? Do we pick up our stones for folks who are of the wrong political party, even if they're obnoxiously so? Is it the person with a different sexuality? Is that person welcome to the table? Elsewhere, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. It's actually Mark chapter two. Every generation, here's the reality, every generation 
in modern history at least, has some specific sin or sins that seem to like rise above the rest. And that Christianity, whoever makes those rules, has determined that's the unforgivable one for our generation. That's the most shameful thing you can do. And so, and so every generation is very okay with like respectable sins, but we join the crowd in John chapter eight and we pick up the stones for the things that we deem to be unacceptable. Y'all, that's not grace and that's not love and that's not the heart of God. But what's the common Christian response to sin? It's something like, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Be better. We'll shun you till you fix yourself. Is that true? Nobody wants to nod. Does that work? What's that lead to? Instead of grace upon grace upon grace, it's shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. That is not good news. And to be fair, because some of you are thinking it, can't swing the pendulum too far, Jesus does charge the adulterous woman to turn from her sin. And that's appropriate because Jesus offers forgiveness and freedom from that sin and he offers something better. But what does Jesus say before he says, sin no more? He says, I don't condemn you. She has already called him Lord. She's already given him some picture of authority over her life before he asks her and charges her to sin no more. That's important. She said, I'm accepting your standard. And he's responding by saying, go sin no more. Hear me. What is the heart of God? And what is good news to whatever sin, whatever false belief, whatever lesser story you believe or your Christian or unchristian friend, neighbor, family members trapped in? The good news is not stop it. The good news is Jesus. Like the answer to gluttony is not a diet. It's learning and accepting Jesus's invitation to love him more than food. The answer to sexual sin is not just some online tracker that reports to someone so they can slap your hand and tell you not to do it again and then do it again. It's learning and accepting Jesus's invitation to see that he satisfies more than sex. And on and on and on. Do you believe this is true, church? So that's the first side of the coin. What does it look like for our non-believing friends, family members, and neighbors to experience you, to experience in you such the opposite of shame and condemnation. But instead, what would it look like if they experienced in you the same welcoming, non-condemning grace and love and heart of God that we see in Jesus? No matter what their sin is, no matter how great their brokenness is, and it's a refreshing balm to their shame. But also, if you believe this is true, there's a second side of the coin. And that's that no matter what your sin is, or how great your brokenness is, or how deep your own shame runs, Jesus would look at you. Just picture yourself in the, in the dirty, shamed, thrown on the ground posture of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus would look at you. He'd write something that we don't know in the sand. 
and fully representing the actions and words and posture of his father in heaven, he would say to you, I don't condemn you. God the Father doesn't condemn you. If you call me Lord, even if your sin is this generation's unforgivable sin, in me you have full grace and in me you have full love. Is that better than stop, don't do it, be better, fix yourself? Y'all, that's not just the common Christian response to to non-believers. That's the common Christian response to each other. It's the common message we tell ourselves. Stop it. Why am I not good enough? So many followers of Jesus are trapped in this cycle. Don't raise your hand. But if this is you, let's talk. Sin, try to fix it. Can't, shame, hide. Fair? Sin, try to fix it. Can't, shame, hide. You know where sin multiplies and loves to fester and grow? It's when you're hiding. It's when you're alone. Why do we hide? Because the common Christian response to sin, whether in ourselves or in others, is not grace and love. It's shame. It's condemnation. It's rejection. And so the cycle continues. And again, Jesus does invite the adulterous woman into a better way, into a better story. Jesus Jesus does charge her sin no more. And and, and throughout the New Testament, God, through his various authors, does invite followers of Jesus to judge each other. And some people need to hear that message. That's also the heart of God. The, The point of this fall is that Jesus is good news to all people in every situation. And sometimes that good news sounds good to you because this is your story and this is your brokenness and this is your sin. And sometimes this other aspect of Jesus' good news sounds better because of their specific story and their specific needs and their specific brokenness. So for some, it's really good news that Jesus is objective truth and a higher authority and that there's a sobering reality. That's a good and needed message. Even still, our posture, our actions, our words, got to be humble when seeking their best for other people. But that's for another day. For, for today and for this woman caught in adultery, the good news is grace, and the good news is non-condemnation, and the good news is love. The good news is you have a place here. All sin and every sin, all brokenness and every brokenness, all shame and every bit of shame is removed at the cross. In Jesus' death, you are free and have been fully forgiven. In Jesus' resurrection, you have a new life, basking in God's unending grace and love. Is that good news? As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, God's love is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Church, do you believe that? Or is there part of you that goes, okay, yeah, that's true. Maybe that's even true for everybody else, but for me, even if that's what God's love is, I have to X, Y, Z. Or maybe I believe that for myself, but for my 
friend, family member, neighbor, I look at them and I'm like, well, they have to X, Y, Z. If you or if a friend, family member, neighbor is trapped in sin, trapped in brokenness, trapped in shame, and we all are, God's that love is for you and it's for them. Do you believe that? And not just up here, but through this whole fall, we're asking, do you actually believe that? As if it's real. Not just theology, not just on Sunday, not just when you read your Bible. Like it's real when you talk to someone this evening. It's real when you experience some shame tomorrow. Do you believe that this is actually real? Every week we're trying to be a little bit tangible and ask how to see this, how to speak the good news of Jesus in real life later today, tomorrow, throughout this week. And I think there's a few principles for those who are trapped in sin and brokenness and shame. The first, invitation over condemnation. I think this is what you see. Not I think, this is clearly what you see in Jesus. Invitation, showing the grace and love and the heart of God and inviting them into something better. That's what Jesus does. And then Jesus can't do this next one because he never sinned. But his encouragement would be to openly admit our own sin and our own brokenness and our own shame. There's no need to hide. In fact, even if there's regrets that we have from the past, we get to look at Jesus and go, look, look how great he actually was. We get to celebrate the forgiveness and rest that we have in Jesus over guilt and shame and regret. And then the third would be for us to live in obedience to God, go and sin no more, but not out of some rules, religious mandate. We go and sin no more. We pursue holiness because we are living in a greater joy and a better story that Jesus gave us. And then we get to invite people into that, not from a shaming posture, but from an invitational posture to go, this this is so much better. Make sense? So let me close with this. At the end of this chapter, at the end of this exchange, after Jesus claims to fully represent God and be God, you know what the religious leaders and God's people do? The very last verse of chapter 8. They picked up stones to throw at Jesus. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The leaders don't get Jesus here. I mean, they don't understand him. They don't, they don't reach him. They don't find him. They don't arrest him here. But if you skip down, it's interesting to me also that like there's two stonings, two almost stonings in this chapter. One legally right under the law and Jesus who never sinned, legally wrong under the law. They were just stone happy. They don't get to Jesus here, but skip a few chapters and they do. And they condemn him more fully than they condemn the adulterous woman. And unlike the adulterous woman and all people, including those who trap him, Jesus never sinned. He alone could have thrown the first stone at the adulterous woman or every other sinner or you. But instead of picking up a stone as the only sinless one, let he who among you is without sin throw the first stone, Jesus had the right to do that. But again, grace and love is not about legal right. Grace and love is about absorbing the wrong. So instead of picking up the first stone and punishing you, you remember what Jesus did, right? 
He took your punishment for your sin. And instead of condemning you, he offered you the freedom that is only truly legally his. And the leaders shamed him. They stripped him, mocked him, beat him, put a sign up on his cross, said this is the king of the Jews. And what did Jesus do? He took it. Why? Because as the Feast of Booths celebrates, God delivers his people from sin and shame. And as the feast's sacrifices reminded God's people the only way to deliver and be free from that sin and shame is that something had to die. Whether it was a lamb in Egypt, whether it was the sacrifices every year at this bloody, bloody feast, or whether it was Jesus, the only way to cover up guilt and shame is blood. Because whether you believe it or no, whether you like it or no, we don't make the rules. The wages of sin is death. So someone will pay for your sin. There's only two options. You will pay. Or if you call Jesus Lord like this woman did, he will pay. And that's how Jesus is good news to sinners and shame. In his life, he doesn't condemn, did not condemn. In his death, he covered and forgave our sin. In his resurrection, he invites you into his grace-filled life, fully and freely restored to righteousness. And as the reigning king now and forever, he sends his spirit into you to help you trust God and help you trust that good news for you and empower you to share that good news with others. Jesus is grace and love. And if that's true, you are free from sin and shame. Good news, church. That, friends, is what we celebrate every time we come to the table. Um, the bread and the wine on Jesus's night before his death was a celebration at another feast that Jesus was participating in, um, fully celebrating the Passover lamb. And Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And he took the wine and passed it and said, this is my blood shed for you and for many. For what? Do you know this? For the forgiveness of sins. And there's a lot, so many layers every time we celebrate communion and none of them are forced and none of them are true. But this of all weeks this fall is like the overt thing that Jesus says. My blood is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. For those in the rows, come take bread, dip it in the juice of the wine. For those at the tables, communion is on the tables. But pause for a moment. And go, do I actually believe that Jesus's death covered one time all my sin and all my shame? And if you say yes, dip it with joy and then come back, we'll take it together. And if you say, I actually have a really hard time believing that, then just say a quick prayer. God, would you help me believe that your death is sufficient? And let this be a tangible reminder. So go, grab the elements, come back. We'll all take it together here in just a minute. All right. So because of one sinless man's absorption of your sin, even though he had a legal right to condemn you for it, your chains are gone. You've been set free, as we'll sing in a minute. Jesus has paid your ransom. For some of you, you're like, that's not the part of the good news that sounds like good news to me. For some of you, that's deeply good news today. If you're feeling shame, if you're feeling sin, I'm happy to talk as we sing here in a few moments. But the reality is you are free.
Jesus's body was broken, hear me, for you, and his blood was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin, all sin, every sin, all shame, every bit of shame, all brokenness, every bit of brokenness. Take and eat. We're going to pass a basket. If you believe in the work of Salt and Light, this is an opportunity to um, offer and support and and a part of discipleship to sacrifice and this kind of stuff. But again, I, I want to make sure, especially on days like today, we're separating this. This is not earning something. This is not something you owe to God. There's a lot of offering theology out there that says God gave it all, so you give him your money. Um, and that's that's not it. Jesus invites us to a better story. And if you believe in that better story and you want to see others believe in that better story, then this is one small way that you get to play a part in something far bigger.